0: Hello, and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. I'm Christina Suzuma Ma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Glenn. Good morning to you.
1: Greetings, Christina, and I'd like to welcome everyone to the Magical Medi-Tour- Medical Tour. <laughs> I am a magical mystery to her. I know, tour. you see,
0: I got you on that roll now.
1: You got me on a roll. I'm going to have to see a specialist. Uh, I, I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide as we travel through the healthcare galaxy each week. We'll be exploring ways to achieve optimal health. Today, I want to talk about a special system in our body, possibly the final frontier in medicine, the part we still need to learn a lot about, and that's the nervous system. And in that, it's made up of a brain, a spinal cord, sensory and motor nerves, and chemical transmitters. It's it's this system that coordinates all the functions of the body, and at the same time, it gathers information from the environment, it assimilates and then integrates it, and ultimately controls our behavior. When all the systems are functioning properly, the life is good. But when things go awry and something's wrong, like a loss of sensation and extremity, or an inability to move a part of the body, or a difficulty speaking appropriately, then life becomes a challenge. And not only is it one of the most devastating challenges that we see in our species, but it's also a challenge uh... for the patient's caregivers so i send a blessing out to all those that are going through disorders of the nervous system and for their caregivers the specialty in medicine that does figure out the complexities of the nervous system is neurology and my very very special guest is a neurologist he's in a private practice and also a professor at the ucla school of medicine in Los Angeles, California. I'd like to welcome Dr. Philip Empty. How are you?
2: Fine, just as usual, busy. No shortage of paperwork.
1: <laughs> no shortage of paperwork. Has medicine uh, become a lot, lot of more. paperwork?
2: Well, I don't know if this will be political or not, but you know, ever since Obamacare and, and these computers, it just made everything more complicated. It's contra- counterproductive, all the computer forms and the. Fifteen hundred forms you have to fill out now, but that's—I guess—the government knows better than us, so who are we to criticize them?
0: Now, now, Philip, do you think that's because it's uh, the shifting of a system that uh, you know shift is always uh, takes a little time to work in?
2: Well, I don't know the direction it's going. Uh, I don't want to get too political. I don't understand what direction it's supposed to be going in, but <laughs> they've generated enormous. Loads of paperwork for us that has nothing to do with healthcare, mm. and I suppose the logic is is to reduce fraud and increase efficiency. But I don't see, and no one really sees how that's happening. Mm. But who well, am I don't to think down, they're, but,
1: I don't think they're going to find out today how it's happening. We're going to look at a few other things,
2: but we may get back to that. Solve. Yeah.
1: Uh, Today, just to give you and everyone else uh, a direction, as a medical guide, I always like to suggest kind of a path that we'll take so the audience will have an idea. I want to go over some things today that many people suffer from. I want to talk about headaches. Then we want to have some time with strokes and then I want to go into something very different, uh, and that's uh, cutting edge, which you're always at the beginning of. is called brain re- rewiring or neuromodulation. It's a way of fixing disorders without the use of drugs, things like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. But first, I'd like to get into a little bit of uh, you socially and historically. I understand that you always had an interest in the neurosciences, and you eventually made your way over to Paris to study the neurosciences. But while you were there, you seemed to take an interest in French cooking, and you stopped your training to study at uh, Tois, if I pronounce that correctly. And then after no, you, you didn't. finished your,
2: <laughs> okay, <laughs> no, you're not even close.
1: Not even like- close. <clears throat>
2: Maison Trois Gros.
1: Maison Trois Gros. Trois Gros. Okay. Yes. Trois That's Gros. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> I appreciate that. I took a shot. It sounds uh, scrumptious know, to yeah, me. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Anyway, th- you you finished your course and did become a French chef, and then went to medical school and decided to study neurology. And I was wondering if you saw any... Uh, similarities in both of those directions and both of those passions. I know that in your French cooking, it's very delicate, it's very precise, it follows a path, and it requires a a devotion and a passion. At the same time, so does your neurology. It follows a path, it requires devotion, and it's very precise. Do you see any resemblance in the two?
2: Well, I see difference is the the one major difference is the chef is there to be appreciated by other people he's not really doing it for himself Whereas a physician people can't really appreciate what a good doctor does unless it's another good doctor you're doing it the 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 motivation the pride comes from the fact you know you're doing a good job patients are not capable of really telling whether a doctor is doing a good job or not they may think they are but the criteria they use really are not the valid ones. I mean, when I make a good diagnosis or I treat correctly, the patient really can't appreciate that. Whereas uh, uh, another neurologist or I can't, I know I did a good job. So the motivations are, one is self-generated, one is external approval. In other words, a chef needs an audience, a, a doctor doesn't. And the doctors <laughs> who have audiences are not the very good ones, the ones you see on TV. Oh,
1: don't say that! I'm on TV. Well, no, I, I wouldn't call this TV. <laughs>
2: yeah. The big, big, the big buck, the big time guys.
1: You know, I was I was thinking the other day about how to introduce you, and uh, I thought about this commercial came into my mind about uh, remember that it was an anti-drug commercial where they showed an egg. And they said, this is your brain, and then they yeah. opened it up and fried it, and this is your brain on eggs. Yeah. And I thought, well, if, <laughs> if the brain is represented by the egg, and you're a neurologist studying the brain, and you're also a chef, and certainly chicken is a very important part of French cooking, I wonder if you could tell us, our listening audience, for the first time, which came first, <laughs> le poulet or les oeufs? That was in the kitchen or in the
2: real world? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> in The kitchen, it's the egg. Where the it's the chicken. But in the real world, I, I was taught the chicken came first because the egg wouldn't know what to develop into. It was if it wasn't for a chicken first, it wouldn't know where to go. But anyway, that's that's the party line. <laughs> Cooking though. No.
1: And we speaking speaking of that. <laughs> I wanted to uh, stay on the social issue a little more. As I've been growing up and still growing up. You, ha- you periodic- have. <laughs> <laughs> still, still, I said. Pe- periodically, I hear about um, foods that we should eat that are brain foods. They make us smarter. So who would be a better person to ask than a chef and a neurologist? Are there any brain foods out there that will make us smarter?
2: There's no real evidence. The problem with all these studies is that they said these nice chemicals are in the food, but how do they get to where they're supposed to in the brain? As you know as a doctor, they're destroyed in the stomach. The best example was about 20 years ago, they did an experiment where they taught cockroaches uh, a maze, how to go through a maze to obtain whatever cockroaches want to eat, or how to avoid raid, I don't know. So they trained these cockroaches how to do the maze, and then they ground up the cockroach's head, and they fed it to other roaches. And they claimed the other roaches now knew, by eating the the smart one's head, how to navigate the maze, which is nonsense. I mean, how did whatever proteins in the cockroach's brain get to the right part of the new cockroach's brain? What they found basically was my field of olfaction. The original cockroaches were leaving a scent trail that the new roaches were finding, so all really faction any, for others breasts. is
1: it's the sensory apparatus.
2: Yeah, they were smelling where the first roaches went. So That's fantastic. Yeah, but the, so the bottom of this is, I mean, whether like they have these, I mean, all these products, but how do they get to the right part of the body through the digestive system? The answer is they probably can't. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> there was some vague. The, one of the they used to say, "Fish will make your, fish will make you smart." There's some validity, fish contain lechitins, which are metabolized into acetylcholine, which is a precursor for certain brain functions. We're trying to treat Alzheimer's disease by increasing acetylcholine levels in the brain. So there's some vague logic that maybe fish increases brain activity. But again, how do the fish, whatever's in the fish, survive the destruction they go through in the stomach? through all the destructive enzymes and get to the right part of the brain. So I don't know. I haven't seen anything valid yet.
1: How about a Reese's peanut butter cup or a Chunky? Is that brain food?
2: No, but I'll take it any day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll go
1: for it. Yeah. Okay, so you know that I was in emergency medicine, right? Yeah, you and call me I, many,
2: I, many I, a day, you called me.
1: That's right. I would wake you up yeah. from a sleep or you were cooking something beautiful. Yes. Yes. Every, there's a statistic that says that every 10 seconds in the United States, someone goes to the emergency department with a complaint of a headache or a migraine. Every hmm. 10 seconds. So headaches are a very important part of lives for people. And there are many different types of headaches. I know that you teach at UCLA and you're teaching new students, and part of it is differential diagnosis. We know that technology has moved very rapidly and given us CAT scans and MRIs or magnetic resonance imaging scans, PET scans, all sorts of imaging studies. How do you teach your students to determine what type of a headache out of the myriad of headaches that people have? Uh, what to look for? And and can you answer it in a way that the people listening would be able to analyze their own headaches if they get them?
2: Well, let me expand the real question. The real essence of headache is don't just say the person has a headache and give them a painkiller. The essence and the goal is to diagnose why they have a headache. Every headache has a cause. Your goal as a diagnostician, is to diagnose why the person has the headache and treat the cause of the headache. If and I almost never do. If you have to give a person a painkiller, that means you've lost. That means you haven't been able to diagnose what it's due to and treat the cause. Um, it's. It, I can't go through. Di- I mean, but the key is to diagnose what it's due to, and that's basically through history, as we've discussed plenty of times. Modern medicine is trying to replace technology. We're trying to replace basic science diagnostic medicine with technology. And you don't, everyone, you have a headache, let's get an MRI. 90% of the time, the MRI doesn't show you what the headache is due to. The key first is a diagnostic process is, number one, is it a continuous headache or is it an episodic headache? That's the first part of the decision tree. Another part is when did it start? If someone has a headache for five or ten years, you backtrack. If they say they had a sudden headache that began within the last day or so, that's a whole other track. Then you get into the quality and nature of the headache. Does it have any features of migraine? See, migraine doesn't mean severe headache. Migraine is a specific neurologic disease that may or may not even cause headache. We see migraine patients who don't have any headache at all, but they have other features of the migraine disorder. So we try to di- if it's an episodic, we try to diagnose, is it migraine or is it one of the other episodic headaches? But that, again, is done by history, not by any spet scan or a PET scan or functional imaging or anything else. Most of the time, I don't order an MRI when I see the patient the first time. Because, again, the, the goal, your goal is diagnostic. You should evaluate your patient and then from the evaluation come up with a list of what's called differential diagnosis. In other words, <clears throat> what could be the causes of this headache? If there's nothing on the list that requires an MRI scan to rule in and rule out, then there is no reason to do an MRI scan. The things that may be on the list that would cause a headache would be a brain tumor, an aneurysm, an abscess, and then more exotic things like a low-pressure headache, vasculitis. But 90% of the time, those things aren't on your list. So, And I haven't been sued yet, but I don't usually order MRI the first time I see a patient. I, I often have what's called algorithms. I'll say, "Well we don't, I don't see any catastrophe that requires me to do an MRI today or next week. I'll try treatment X, Y, and Z. I'll get them back in a week or two weeks or three weeks, and if they're better under that treatment, then that rules out anything that could be wrong with the brain that an MRI would solve, solve the first, solve the answer. So they don't get an MRI. Uh, to get back to politics and medicine, one reason healthcare is so expensive is that everybody almost everyone with a headache gets an MRI at two to $3,000 a shot. And I, from what I've seen, 90% of them are not needed. To get back to emergency, if you go to the emergency room with a headache, you're going to get a, an MRI or a CAT scan. Even if the headache has been there five years and you've been taking Vicodin or whatever else and you ran out of your Vicodin, 90% of the time they're going to do a CAT scan and waste another $1,000 of, of somebody's money.
1: What about... Uh... Uh- migraines let's talk about them for a while because and and even staying in within the concept of headaches when people do get headaches various types they're re- sometimes they're incapacitating incapacitating the there are people that can work through their headache take a an anti-inflammatory and go on with their day but it's always in the background but we see people with migraines that have they can't look at light they can't hear sounds uh, yeah. It's very difficult for them to live and, they, and they're and they always in the background. They're always worried. Are there things that people should know about migraines that we, we don't know yet?
2: Well, a lot of the lay public still assumes migraine means severe headache and it doesn't. Migraine has nothing to do with the severity of headache. Migraine is, is a primary neurologic disorder. We know what are the brain centers involved in causing the disorder. We have quite a bit of the, the neurochemistry and the neuroanatomy mapped out for what causes a migraine. The key to migraine is it isn't just a headache. It, the, the neurologic signals causing migraine cause all other kinds of things. Like when migraine can't stand light or get nauseous or vomit or have to go into a dark, quiet room, it's usually not because their head hurts so much and they're wimps and they can't stand the pain. It's because the migraine is causing it to be very sensitive to light or sound or it can actually make them throw up, or at least be nauseous. Uh, In children, you can have children that are just playing throw up and don't even have migraine. So when you see a migraine patient who says, I have to go in a dark, quiet room, I'm sick, I can't stand light." It's not that they're weak people, it's that the migraine is doing that to them. And you don't even have to have a headache to have those kind of symptoms. And migraine can cause other symptoms by something called spreading depression, which is actually suppression of brain activity. And you remember the lady who was announcing at the Emmy, or it was the Grammys about six months ago, who started to speak in gibberish. That was actually a migraine causing that. It can cause speech dysfunction, cause blindness. Usually it's transient, thankfully, but the key to migraine is it's not, it doesn't mean headache. It's a neurologic disease that may or may not cause headache.
1: What kind of treatments are there for people that have this?
2: Well, due to medical research, you've actually lined out and elaborated on the chemical reactions that take place in a migraine disorder. One of them is due to certain a serotonin syndrome. So we have these very effective drugs called triptans that will actually block the chemical process that leads to migraine pain. And there's about four or five different triptans. So one way to treat migraine is called is called abortive is that you give the person a pill that will uncouple the migraine brain reactions when they start uh certain selected patients that's the best way the other way is called preventative is you give them pills they take every day to prevent the headache from starting and the key to migraine is every patient has to have their their therapy tailored to the nature of their headache their own personal lifestyle their preferences. Some patients don't want to take pills every day, so we give them the abortive. Some patients can't stand the fact that the headache may start any minute, it's like the sort of Damocles. They're nervous at any, any minute in their day the headache could start, so those we people tend to use the preventatives. So those are the, the two categories of
1: medications we use. When you talk about lifestyle, <laughs> are there things that people can do in their lifestyle to avoid some of these headaches? Well,
2: are you referring to migraine? In reference to migraine, yes, there's many... The theory of migraine, it seems to be provoked by external sensory stimuli, at least in part, that produce abnormal brain reactions. There's many triggering factors, and many migraine patients have figured out their own triggering factors. There's no one list for everybody. But there's at least 30, 40 triggering factors. The more common ones are foods, are certain elements in foods that can trigger migraines. Uh, menstrual cycle for women, the hormone change will trigger migraines, and that's called catamenial migraine. Uh, the other things is barometric pressure, uh, odors, light, change of day-night cycle. So any, I usually give the patients a list, and they try to go over it and see if. Their headaches are related to one of the things on the triggering factor list, but many of the patients have just figured out themselves that a certain odor will trigger migraine, or if they change uh, if they change time zones, or they go up in an airplane, and have barometric pressure changes that'll trigger a migraine.
0: It's really interesting um, that you bring that up. I, I actually had a, a friend of ours, a a young uh, a mother, and whose sixteen-year-old daughter was suffering terribly during her menstrual cycles in the, uh, since November. And I can't remember the list of medications that their doctor put her on, you know, and she even went to emergency one day and the mother just said, you know, I I just hate her being on all this medication. Is there anything you can suggest? And I said, well, first and foremost, she's 16. She's very athletic. I said, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a naturopath. I said, but the first thing I'd do is just take off all her sugars, like just cut all her sugars in her diet And, uh, uh, in the sort of the herbal world, we have the blackberry leaf, a raspberry leaf tea. And I said, put her on that tea a week before her period. And this was the first period in six months that she didn't have any migraines. She wasn't throwing up and everything has stabled and off all the medications. So, so simple. And, well, call it luck. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> Something worked in in just those two chips. So you know, it, it's amazing. Uh, I'm I'm really amazed, uh, Philip, that you know, uh, as a layman and not in the medical profession, every time we hear about a migraine, we think it is a headache and it is a headache that doesn't go away. But now to learn that it takes shape in so many different forms, you know, from you know being nauseous to not. You know, not being able to, to deal with light and so many other forms. I think that is, um, that's something that, that we may have to bring you back to discuss further, don't you think, Glenn?
1: I agree. It sounds, yeah. There's so much. And especially, as I said before, the brain and the nervous system are pretty much the final frontier in medicine. You know, if you think about all the different, just as an aspect of transplants. We now can transplant a kidney, we can yep. transplant the heart, we can transplant uh, a liver or lungs. I even listened to a talk the other day on the transplantation of hands. Uh, I know. But uh, we have not uh, transplanted a brain, And we're, although we're coming closer. I think we've done some experimentation in transplanting parts of a brain, maybe for people with uh, Parkinson's disease at one point. What was it in the substantia nigra or something like that, Philip? That uh...
2: Yeah, this is a little not as dramatic. I mean, what they're doing is this, this Parkinson is due to a deficiency of a certain part of the brain making a certain chemical. So what they're implanting is cells that will make that chemical, which is a lot less dramatic than saying we're going to implant neurons that are going to connect up with the inherent circuits to correct circuit problems. They're basically putting in uh, a chemical. They're implanting a chemical factory into the brain with the substantia nigra implants. Well,
1: but, we'll see where that goes in the future, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So,
2: yeah.
0: so is that a surgical implant?
2: <clears throat> yeah, it's not being, It was held up by the fetal cell people. You know, it was fetal transplant. So, what's the legislation was held up? I think now it's back online, but I'm not aware of any. Recent studies where they've mm. done in America.
0: Wow.
1: Before we before we move away from headaches, uh, you know, we we hear in a lot of the journals or the or at least in the media about the dangers of cell phones and uh, microwave ovens and brain tumors. Have you, in any of your research, read uh, any? increase evidence, or do you believe that maybe it's still too early to know?
2: Well, from a, from a statistical, what's called epidemiological level, there's no data, that that is negative. But from a, sci- from a theoretical level, I think the jury's still out because a lot of these radiation phenomena take many years before they actually express the damage that they cause. No, but they're damaging DNA. And it may take five or ten years for the damage of the DNA to actually lead to a production of a cancer. I recall there was used to be some skin condition they would irradiate the children's brain, the, the children's scalp, and then they wouldn't come down with certain tumors for five or ten years later. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, when in doubt, I'd say don't sit there all day on your your cell phone. But I don't. I'm not qualified, and I was told by bioengineers that. They model it, and they say not, a, not enough radiation would get through the skull. But I, the bottom line is I'm not an expert, and I think the jury is still out on that.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you uh, do you ever recommend any natural products for people that have uh, migraines?
2: Yeah, the, the one that's – I mean, first, of all, there's all kinds of things out there, and how do you sort through what's valid or not? The most statistically valid product for migraine is called feverfew. Which I do i mean I, every patient's different than if a patient is is aversive to drugs, and I offer that as an alternative, and a few have had some some benefit of fever few
1: do you uh how do you get them to get it
2: uh, they call a health food store,
1: I'm not okay. sure where
2: they find or a good old internet
1: I would say. And I'm always happy when I hear about uh, natural things. But as Christine and I spoke about earlier, just because it's natural doesn't mean it's necessarily healthy for you. We always talk about the sun and arsenic and nicotine all being natural products. But uh, feverfew does have some some legitimate uh, healing processes. But if you're going to take it, I think you need to do it under the care of someone that knows what they're doing and also someone that can teach you to recognize whether or not you should be taking it because you should consider it just as if it were a drug that, that has side effects. Some people can develop problems from taking them, and if you get used to taking it and you take it over a long period of time, you might even have the effects of uh, withdrawal syndrome and get rebound headaches if you're taking it for headaches. So I would always consider when you hear something like this, it's a great idea to be able to take something a little more natural, but be just as careful with something that has the labeling of being natural. One of the things, if you can't find information on feverfew, it seems to work in many ways like aspirin, or at least it works on many of the things that aspirin does, but obviously a little more complex. So if you just went to look at the side effects of what aspirin might do, uh, you would be able to see some of the things that feverfew might do as a side effect, but still it has some potential for uh, helping people that have those migraines that can't take the medications that you mentioned before. So I'd like to move on. Now, and talk about another topic, uh, and that's a stroke. It, again, on a uh, statistical basis, I read something that recently said, on average, someone in the United States has a stroke every 40 seconds. So with that as an introduction, Philip, I would like you to maybe give us all Stroke 101. Uh, and then we can talk about some of the treatments.
2: Well, the treatment, well, stroke basically the, the stroke basically means blood flow has been cut off to a certain part of the brain to cause damage. And the symptoms of the stroke are a function of what part of the brain was damaged. Uh, there's two basic kinds of stroke. There's the hemorrh- hemorrhage. And the ischemic hemorrhage means basically the blood vessel broke, so there's a collection of blood within the brain. That's treated entirely differently than the other type, which is ischemic. Ischemic means blood flow is cut off to a certain part of the brain. A certain part of the brain is basically choked from lack of blood flow. You divide that into two gross categories. The interruption of blood flow came either from a blood clot that traveled through the system and wound up in an artery going to the brain. And that's divided further into blood clots coming from the heart, blood clots coming elsewhere. And the other type, which is more common, it's due to a blockage of the artery going to the brain, most commonly the carotid artery. Uh, The whole field has exploded in the last 15 years because now we can actually treat stroke. The key to treatment is what caused it. The first step is, like with headache, is diagnose why the person had a stroke. If it's due to a, a hemorrhage, that's an entirely different treatment than due to an interruption of blood flow. Uh, the interruption of blood flow aspect, we, we were kind of, we're doing what cardiology did, but about 10 years behind. When someone has a heart attack, which is a blockage of an artery in the heart, the cardiologist will immediately go in and try to relieve that blockage through either, through either drugs that dissolve the blood clot or through angioplasty where they actually try to go with catheters and pull the clot out of the heart. Their job is a lot easier than we have with the brain. So we're about 15 years behind the time. But in 1995, the first study was done showing that you can give a stroke patient these blood clot dissolvers. An initial medication used was called TPA. And they got, it wasn't a brilliant black or white home run, but they showed statistically significant outcomes when these blood stroke patients were given TPA in the first three hours, I don't want to elaborate. There's all kinds of criteria, guidelines for who gets it, who doesn't get it. But at least the first study showed for the first time that it could actually reverse a stroke with an emergency treatment by dissolving the blood clot. The field has evolved incredibly since then because, again, dissolving it with giving a, a medication to the, into the vein is not that effective so we took the model of what the heart cardiology people were doing and tried to actually insert catheters into the arteries that go to the brain to number one either dissolve the clot by squirting this dissolving chemical directly on the blood clot or even more impressive using what's basically a corkscrew device to try to corkscrew through the blood clot and simply pull it out which would be the ideal situation um... This this was, I mean, this, this started 15 years ago, but it's really only exploding now. Part of the problem is access. UCLA, we've had that for about 10 years, but these kind of procedures have to be done within the first four to six hours, because once the clot is there long enough, and once the blood flow is cut off a long enough time, the brain tissue is dead, so taking the blood clot out won't, won't accomplish anything, so... It's called uh, time is brain. You really need to get the person to one of these stroke treatment centers as soon as possible. And at least with you know, I mean, well, the maximum timeout would be six hours. And now slowly the centers like UCLA are training more and more people to do what's called invasive neuroradiology. Or in other words, stick the catheters through the arteries to reach the brain to either dissolve the blood clot or pull the blood clot out more people been trained. And now these people are trickling out and they're going to the secondary areas, which can be reached by people within hopefully two or three hours. And now, as you know, here in Santa Barbara, we have someone who can do the invasive uh, neuroradiology for us.
1: Could you tell us, uh, just for most of us, that might see someone, a relative or a friend, or even recognize it in yourself, some of the simple signs that they might think that they're having a stroke and should make the decision to be seen quickly. What are some of the things that people could just look for quickly rather than have to go through medical school just to uh, find out how to make the diagnosis?
2: There's various little... Uh, catchwords algorithms on the I think ones called say five or high five. Basically, a stroke would cause one side of the body to be different than the other side. So I'd look for some kind of asymmetry. One side of the face is drooping, one arm and or one leg is weaker than the other side. An arm or leg is numb and the other side is not numb. You have trouble seeing off, but strokes are almost always asymmetric. There's something called brain stem stroke, we're not gonna talk about that. Um, if the symptom lasts only five or 10 seconds, it wasn't a stroke, uh, it could be a TIA, which is a warning sign for a stroke. But I think in general, anything that one side of the body is doing that the other side isn't, or that there's a language problem, the person isn't speaking clearly or understanding clearly, I would definitely go to the hospital as soon as possible and not wait.
1: Are there things that we can uh, make them do, like ask them to smile or to close your eyes or to look in a direction or to say certain words or to raise a hand? Those are kind of things that might help uh, a a bystander or a loved one.
2: Yes. If you detect one side, one arm is not raising as rapidly as the other side or seems clumsy or the other side or the patient seems to be limping on one leg, you have to concern yourself about a stroke.
1: Mm -hmm. And now after you have a stroke and you've been to the hospital and either they've been successful, you got there quickly and it was successful and everything is okay, uh, that would be one algorithm. Is there something that people could then do to prevent a second stroke? And then the second part of that question would be if you did have a stroke and it went to completion and you were now – left with certain deficits. Is there hope that those deficits can be uh, brought back? We hear so much about uh, retraining the brain and plastinization of the brain.
2: Well, there will be recovery after a stroke, which is why you see all of these, I don't know how much, I don't know how to use the word, hopeful. hopeful cures. Where they claim they had stroke patients and they did whatever treatment, non-medical treatment the patients got better, they don't realize that almost all all stroke patients will show some recovery in the first three to six months, which is why we need what we call in science a control study. In other words, if people want to apply whatever non-medical item or product, they have to take a similar bunch of group of patients and not apply the product to prove that their product has actually brought about the improvement, because stroke patients will improve spontaneously. And there's a, you have a marketing situation where there's a lot of people are devastated by stroke, they're desperate, and they'll reach out to any kind of a, a cure that's been proposed without having a scientific background to realize there's no data to support that cure. I don't want to get sued, but there's somebody who advertises now on radio in Los Angeles that he's, he can reverse the damage caused by a stroke with a certain drug chemical. And I don't want to say much, but there, he, there is no scientific evidence. He, he shows people, let's say, I was much better after this treatment. But again, there's no scientific evidence. The only thing coming down the line is what's called a uh, uh, cellular implant, where they are taking the damaged part of the brain and implanting what are called stem cells into the brain. Stem cells are very primitive, sort of, you have to call them seed, seedling cells, which evolve into specialized cells based on where they are in the in the body. So for various reasons, these these stem cells, if they're in a damaged part of the brain, it's kind of like a, a service dog. They know what they need to do. Now, the curious thing there is the initial theories where the stem cells are actually realizing that the neurons in the brain are damaged or died, so let's become neurons. The newer studies, is not true that they're becoming cells that stimulate the growth of other new cells or stimulate the growth of blood vessels, but they're really not becoming neurons to replace the damaged neurons. But there are some controlled studies saying these stem cell implants will permanently improve a, a deficit caused by a stroke. As far as what, what your phrase is called secondary prevention, in other words, someone's had a stroke, had to reduce the risk of a second stroke. First of all, the risk is very high after a first stroke. It means there's something wrong with your body that caused a stroke. And if it's not detected and fixed, you probably will have another stroke over the next year or two years, whatever. The key to this is like my headache model. You need to discuss and diagnose why the person had the stroke. Is it due to a blood clot coming from the heart? Then you need to treat the heart to prevent further blood clots. Is it a blockage of an artery? Then you probably need to fix the artery, either with something called endoterectomy, where actually operate, open up the artery, clean out the blockage, or an alternative treatment now called angioplasty, where they put a, a catheter into the artery and they blow up a balloon to distend it back to where it should be. Uh, there's also treatment of what are called the risk factors. People usually have a stroke where they're not taking care of themselves. They have diabetes, hypertension, they're smoking, their cholesterol is high. So we need to work on the risk factors. And that's that's a multidisciplinary approach of basically getting the patient to reduce his cholesterol if it's high, blood pressure if it's high, stop smoking, get into exercise, and try to slow down the what's called atherosclerosis process that hardened his arteries to cause the first stroke.
1: Nice answer. I think that right, was yeah. uh, really complete and well done. There's, you know, there's so much interest in medicine. One of the things that I love about medicine is that it's always a frontier. We're always finding new things. and. We're getting more and more specialized. I was discussing with a colleague the other day about uh, blood clots. And there are now specialists that are just studying the inside lining of blood vessels and what happens on them and what, what the clots are caused by. And so many of the things that we think about with just cholesterol being the problem, we're finding out that it's much more complex than just cholesterol. We're finding out that there are many different types of clots that happen, and some clots are stable and some clots are unstable, and I think that uh, at some point we will have someone on this show that can discuss that because I think it's a very interesting topic. I'd like to um, move now into something that's uh, really cutting edge. And that's something you and I talk about a little, but I think that our listeners should know about. It's called neuromodulation and rewiring the brain. What can you tell us uh, is out in the uh, horizon?
2: Well, this will be one of the next big things in science, not just neurology, but science. It's in its infant larval state but uh, I just went to a seminar at Stanford about it, and it's fascinating how much progress they're making. Basically, up until now, we've been trying to... Well, let me backtrack. Most drugs are used for brain diseases will either speed up or slow down the activity of neurons, because that's how the brain works. The neurons fire signals, and they transmit signals in performative functions. They are by either firing more rapidly or more slowly, or in different synchronies with other parts of the brain. So the, neur- the brain comes down to a computer where it's each part is sending signals to another part, and that's what leads to behavior and neuron function. Up until now, the only way we been able to modify the firing of neurons and the circuitry is by using drugs. There's another way to change the firing activity of neurons, and that's with electric stimulation by applying electricity you can either make these neuron cells fire faster or slower or in different synchronous patterns. So this field doesn't doesn't even have a name. The names they use for this field it's either called deep brain stimulation, neuromodulation, functional neurosurgery, or the title of the Stanford uh, symposium was rewiring the brain. In a nutshell, what the purpose of this endeavor is, is to discover what are the abnormal circuits involved in any specific illness, and now we're even talking about psychiatric illnesses. Number two, to discover what is the abnormal firing activity or signals that these centers are giving that are abnormal. Number three is to design a system where you can put electrodes into the deficient parts of the brain or even other parts to try to correct the abnormal signal firing pattern and restore it to normal. Now, the first two examples of this were Parkinson's disease and a shaking disorder called essential tremor. And these were, these were fairly simple and straightforward. We know exactly where the Parkinson's disease abnormality is. We know what it is. So it isn't that, I it probably is, but it's relatively simple to put electrodes in various parts of the brain and try to correct the abnormal firing patterns that lead to Parkinson's disease. Uh, Another disorder is essential tremor, which is a shaking disorder. Again, we put electrodes. Now these two are, these are, we hate to use the word routine, but they are. I mean, at major centers like UCLA, we're implanting these deep brain stimulators to treat Parkinson or essential tremor on a fairly consistent basis. And the results are quite good. And it's, like I said, it's considered almost a routine operation. Which very exciting is it's going to it's in the process of being expanded using the higher technology brain imaging, which is primarily something called functional imaging, which is you can see what parts of the brain are active in different activities and then take people with a medical impairment or a psychological impairment to compare to the people who are normal to see what the differences are you can elicit data on what is causing a certain abnormality and then from that you can lead to how can we correct the abnormality by putting electrodes in the brain and stimulating parts of the brain now what i found fascinating this is now spreading over into the world of psychiatry and psychology certain disorders are fairly organic like obsessive compulsive disease and post-traumatic stress disorder And I was very impressed by the work on post-traumatic stress disorder. They found basically post-traumatic stress disorder, because of the childhood stress or the previous stress, when certain stimuli reach the brain, they cause one part of the brain to abnormally activate another part called the amygdala, which makes perfect sense, is the traumatic memory part of the brain. And so now, simple stimulus that wouldn't really cause the amygdala to become too activated now cause the amygdala to become activated, and that leads to fear, emotions, and panic. So they actually have a a neurologic basis for PTSD. It's this abnormal early activation of this amygdala. So it hasn't been done yet, but I'm sure it will be pretty soon. The next logical sequence is to implant stimulators in the brain so in a these these deep brain stimulators. So when a person receives a certain image, like a person who's been in a car crash, PTSD means they, they see a car crash or they hear one or they read of one, and then they go into this panic mode where they can't function. So the ideal situation will be to put electrodes in the brain, which will pick up when the person is thinking about a car crash. And when they do, it will send a circuit signal to the amygdala To suppress it so the signal from that part of the brain to amygdala doesn't cause the panic attack situation. And that's somewhere down the line. There are, I think, some implants being done for OCD, which is, again, it's, it's another short circuit in the brain where people cannot stop themselves from following certain traditions. It's due to reward. They get abnormal rewards for following whatever obsessions they have. And we're now using electrodes to block those, those abnormal circuit patterns also. Uh, so eventually I see medications will be replaced with electric stimulation because it's actually, as crazy as it sounds, you're drilling a hole in someone's brain and sticking electrodes in. It's actually probably preferential to saying you'll be on pills the rest of your life.
1: Do you uh, think, uh, well, uh, well, I well, I can see the, see the, original, original the initial ones, would, ones probably would probably have something worth having to, to have an external, external battery, battery source, an external, external uh, 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 switch on, on and on and off. And do you see at you you some point where they will be to able with to, with nanotechnology, nanotechnology insert, insert a little plant plant?
2: External is kind of down the line. They do have external stimulators. We do these things for seizures also, and people can feel a seizure coming on. And those people have these brain stimulators. We, they have a magnet. They can turn the brain stimulator on. But all of these systems we're talking are completely internal. And the per, there's nothing that you could see that would tell you the patient has one of these brain stimulators. But the field is so larval right now. But, I mean, the, the applications will be incredible in the future. And who knows Who knows where it will go or wind up.
1: So yes. I, I have another question, which we haven't uh, planned on speaking about, but I know we have a few minutes left, and I, I am going to want to ask you for a tip, uh, some kind of a health tip that's going to be standard for all of the guests that come on. But before we get to that tip, uh, I wanted to know, what where, where does consciousness come from?
2: I don't have... I mean. See, I know enough to know I don't know much about certain things, and that's one. I mean, they can go on forever with philosophy. There's, there's hundreds of theories, and I, I mean, the answer is we don't know. You know, every generation, every culture has theoretical explanations for what they see around them, but I don't have any, You know, I don't know any more than anyone else on that. So in other words, I know enough to know I don't know, and I think that's my final answer.
1: <laughs> Do you want to call a friend?
2: To, to, everyone has opinions, but we know what we said about it in private. So I don't know. If you knew someone who called to tell me what consciousness is, I, I mean, just read newer things, and none of them really, you know, every, I mean, even even the prehistoric people had explanations for everything they saw around them. And I think in a thousand years, our explanations for consciousness will be laughed at by whoever's around then, if anyone's around. So
1: I don't I don't get involved in that. <laughs> I knew that. I was I was hoping that on TV I could uh coerce get you to me give us the answer. I could coerce you into yeah. giving us the answer that I know that you know but you're keeping from us.
2: A tip with headache is stay away from drugs. Like the example you heard, I mean to get I'll get back to my real tip, but the little tip I was thinking You may, you may. I was mentioned that child with the with the menstrual cycle migraine. Yes. The the way to again, as I said, the way to treat it correctly, if it's only menstrual cycle, there are certain drugs you give that are actually quite harmless, only at the time of menstrual cycle, or one or two days before. So again, you have to treat these things smartly. And if they were slamming this girl with drugs, that's wrong. They should have realized it's menstrual migraine, and treated in a smart bomb way, not just a Sledgehammer way. But that, gets, <laughs> that gets to my big tip is an incredibly common cause of headaches or headaches getting worse is what's called medication overuse headache. Uh-huh. And as simple as it sounds, it was only discovered, I think, 20 years ago. Uh, and it, it's so hard to convince patients. Well, half the patients accept it and half don't and go on and continue to have headaches. But in brief, if you have a headache disorder, primarily migraine, if you take a lot of medication, and it could be as benign as aspirin or Motrin, eventually the brain, like I said, rewiring the brain, the migraine parts of the brain have actually rewired themselves, and they've acclimated to having aspirin, Motrin, or worse in the system. So if you don't take the pill, you get a withdrawal, and that causes this headache trigger to trigger another headache. So what do you do? you got a headache, you take another pill, which may or may not work, but when that wears off, it triggers another headache. So these patients wind up in a vicious cycle where basically the tail is now chasing the dog. This is incredibly common, and the pharmaceuticals don't want to hear about it because they want to keep selling their pills. And they don't want to tell you that if you have any kind of a significant headache, taking pills every day is a lose-lose situation because eventually you'll probably get into an analgesic rebound cycle. And... This, the, the noose gets tighter and tighter and I have patients who are taking 10, 15 over-the-counter pills a day and getting headaches every day. And you're trying to you, some you can convince but some you can't that the reason they get a headache tomorrow is because they took 10 pills today. And to get them out of that vicious cycle can be very difficult because the first question you hear is, what do I do when I get my headache tomorrow? And I have to say tough love. You have to accept the fact that for three or four days you're going to have bad headaches. If you take a pill, you're taking a step backwards, and you'll have a headache the next day. So just detox and accept for two or three days you'll be miserable. And about ninety percent of my patients, where I can get them to accept that and do that, will get better. They still have headaches, but it's not every few days. They go back to their basic migraine disorder pattern which should not be more than one headache every two or three weeks. So that's the first way a person can help themselves. And number two, if you have a headache, don't start the vicious cycle, because it takes years for the vicious cycle to start. Don't start taking a lot of uh, whatever you can buy in the pharmacy over-the-counter, because there's a very good likelihood that, yes, you're treating your headache, but over the years you'll wind up in this rebound cycle, and taking more pills just makes it worse.
1: Thank you for that tip. Thank you. Appreciate that.
0: You know, I have to tell you, I, I love hearing uh, a doctor say, back off the pills." I really love hearing that. <laughs>
2: don't, don't get me started on that. I mean, half the time uh, I'm gonna get, half the time I see a patient from a psychiatrist who are, or patients who have seen psychiatrists, half the time I'm reducing the drugs that the psychiatrists are giving them.
0: Oh, fantastic. And,
2: and we don't see any worsening of their disease or pathology in the patients, whatever side effects they, or whatever symptoms they came to me for, which are usually side effects of the psychiatric drugs have improved. I mean, it's very easy to give a drug. It's not easy to get someone to decide to take someone off a drug.
0: Right, right. I mean, it just sounds like it's uh, very similar to any drug someone would take out that is not uh, medical basically prescribed drug. Everything takes that time to yeah. sort of wean out of the body. Oof. Yeah. Wow, thank you so much, uh, sure. Philip, for all this wonderful information. I'm, I'm so jazzed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I would like to just say I am grateful to my special guest, Dr. Philip Enti, for sharing his wisdom and experience with us. Maybe bring him back again another time to talk about many of the other things he knows about. I'd also like to thank all of my teachers and healers, those that have given me healing through my life. I look forward to getting together again in the magical medical tour when we explore uh, another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. So until our next meeting, I want to wish you all optimal health okay Wonderful.
0: thank you thank you thank you sure. uh, Dr. You're Philip welcome. Ante Dr. Glenn Woolman our medical guide and thank you everyone for joining us for YHTV's magical medical tour which is always a mystery <laughs>